I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. climate is not famously attractive. Gale force winds, thunderstorms, frost and floods are just some of the weather systems that our little islands can expect to confront in any given year. And yet up and down the country, plants native to tropical rainforests and dangerously dry deserts are happily growing in size and popularity. So how have we managed this? Well, by growing indoors, of course. If you'd like your indoor world to look a little bit more like a jungle, author and TV gardener Francis Tophill will be talking you through how to achieve just that. And if you've ever felt particularly calm around houseplants, but wanted to unpick the science behind why that is, the University of Reading's own Jenny Berger will be here to explain. And this triumph of tropical plants in the UK got us thinking about what a future with even hotter summers could look like which is why we sat down with RHS Garden Hyde Hall's Matthew Oliver to hear his predictions for the British Kitchen Garden. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. This summer was a scorcher. I live in the southeast and I've got a sandy soil, so I plant for drought and my trees and shrubs, which are the basis of my gardening along with bulbs, survived really well. But on my allotment, to my great surprise, things suffered more from drought than I expected. I've been spending immense amounts of time and energy manuring and improving the soil for many years, and I really felt my plants should have stood up to drought a bit better. And I, for one, am ready to do a post-mortem of the record-breaking season so that we can examine how to be better prepared and take full advantage of hotter, drier periods. Hello, my name is Matthew Oliver. I'm a horticulturist here at RHS Garden Hyde Hall and I work in our global growth vegetable garden. So I spend all day, every day, growing fruit and veg for our restaurant. We've come out of a, a record-breaking hot summer. It's been challenging for the professional gardener and the home gardener in terms of watering and irrigation. And definitely for us here, sort of, thinking about if this is going to become more of a common occurrence do we need to be looking at the types of crops we grow tweaking our planting palette what does better in years like this and what's done worse and do we need to be thinking about changing things for the future 
We've had a few, a few interesting observations in the veg garden this year. One crop I always get asked an awful lot about because people love them and that's sweet potatoes. It's a challenge to grow a good crop of sweet potatoes for the home gardener. But in a summer that we've had this year, you know, you get exceptional growth rates out of them. The plants get massive because they love the full sun. They love the heat, a tropical plant. If you can get enough water on them, water regularly then you can grow a good crop i think that is a crop for the future because people love buying sweet potatoes i get asked about it all the time how to grow them my tips for them would be full sun definitely full sun cross your fingers and pray for a summer like the one we've had this year because they love it and then go out and buy a named variety that is proven to do well in the uk so I've got a range of three or four that I grow. I've experimented with a few new ones this year. The most reliable one is one called Borgard or Bowgard Improved. And it's quite a reasonably well-behaved plant, but you do need to give them a bit of space. And that's the one that will crop the easiest in the UK. Another one called Carolina Ruby. It's worth a go. It's very sweet flavour to it, but perhaps not quite as heavily cropping as the Bowgard Improved. The best way to buy them is to go to a specialist seed company or plant nursery, get online and buy them as a rooted cutting. They'll be delivered to you sort of early to end of May and plant them out in the garden sort of June time. I think a lot of people make the error of buying a sweet potato tuber from the supermarket, trying to grow that in a glass of water and take a cutting off of it, but they'll have been imported from I don't know, Egypt or wherever, and they're not really suited to the UK climate. So I think that is a potential crop for the future that perhaps become more common as our summers heat up more. And that's one that people want to grow, but it's difficult, but will become easier. So that's a lesson learned at the back of this summer. Another one that's really interesting at the moment, I've noticed the last couple of weeks, we've got a pomegranate plant we're growing in a pot. It's outside the glasshouse, south facing, and it's still a rare and notable thing to see a pomegranate fruit in the UK. Our one, it's a very young plant, but it's got some fruit on it. So that is, to me, that is an indicator. You'll always get flowers off of them, but they'll never set fruit. And like two or three years in, I'm seeing the pomegranate fruit and you think, well, if our summers get maybe one day, you know, is East Anglia, the south of England, are we going to have a climate that's a bit more Mediterranean, a bit more like central southern France? Maybe that's something in the future. It might not be such a rare and notable thing to see those things cropping in the UK. So yeah, although the, the heat was extreme, it's definitely brought different things horticulturally to look at and observe. Thanks, Matthew. According to the figures I've read, we can expect summers to be 15% drier by 2050, and we can expect more of the kind of weather we've had this year with intense hot dry periods and also heavy episodes of rain. It's something we're going to have to bear in mind. The pomegranates Matthew talked about I haven't actually grown but they're some at Wisley in the corner of a walled garden and in summers like this they do remarkably. It's never going to put the Turkish growers out of business but the fruits look really good and later on as they mature they split showing all the tasty berries inside. As the summers get hotter, there's potential to grow more Mediterranean-type fruits. 
Figs are the classic one. They grow really well in southern England already and they can get better and better under climate change. And we can also expect things like loquats and also olives to be more productive. There's already an outdoor commercial apricot orchard in Britain that sells its fruits to the supermarket. So although climate change is a serious matter and it will cause many difficulties all over the world, there are a few crops that gardeners can grow that will benefit from the changing conditions. So Mediterranean plants, lavender, cistus, flomus, thymes, are excellent for the hot, drier areas of your garden. But you know, remember that it's still going to get cold in winter. And if you hanker after a Sicilian lemon tree, that's still going to have to be brought indoors for the winter. Gardening on my allotment is one of my favourite things to do. And in weeks like this, when it's not too hot and not too cold, it's fabulous to be outdoors. But as the days begin to get shorter and some cooler air settles in, now's the perfect time to think about how you'll want your home to look and feel as you spend more time inside it. I delegate houseplants to my wife and she's very accomplished. We've got houseplants that she started off before we were married and that's over 20 years ago. At the moment, they're sitting outdoors, but they'll soon come inside, having been freed of slugs and snails and weeds and any other pests, and they'll adorn the house for the winter. They love being outside in the summer. and They've put on an awful lot of lovely green leaves. All the dust has been washed off. The only downside is they'll have to be put in bigger pots at some stage, and it's getting increasingly difficult to fit them into the house. But enough from me. Let's hear from another expert horticulturist with their own fine collection. I love houseplants and like lots of people I've moved around a lot and I don't own my own home so my houseplants have come with me from place to place and it's a really wonderful way of bringing some interesting botanical species into my life. I can grow tender things, I can grow edible things, I have gingers and lemongrass and peppers and tomatoes every single year but also some amazing lush tropical plants like alocasias and colocasias and thuriums I have monstera, I have everything. I absolutely love them. They bring a bit of humanity to my home and every room in my house is as crammed as it possibly can be with houseplants. My name is Frances Tophill and I am a gardener, I am a botanist, I'm a conservationist and I'm a passionate plant grower, whether it's indoors or outdoors. My first ever houseplant was a Japanese peace lily that I still have to this day. It was when I was a student in Edinburgh studying horticulture, botany, and I could only afford one. And so it used to come with me to every room that I was in. <laughs> but if you would consider yourself to be a houseplant serial killer, like many of us do, then you're probably making a few basic mistakes and I can help you with those. The first houseplant blunder that people often make is buying bad plants in the first place. It's really easy to be tempted into buying things in the supermarket or in homeware stores. They're cheap, they look healthy, but in actual fact, they've probably not been grown by specialists and they're probably being kept alive using all kinds of sprays and chemicals just to keep them healthy in rather unfavorable conditions. And that means you often get a weaker plant to begin with. If you buy your houseplant from a specialist houseplant nursery and you speak to a person who's an expert in growing those plants, then you can find out where they like to be, how they like to be grown, and then you're gonna guarantee yourself a lot more success. 
The second mistake that a lot of us make is thinking it's a one-size-fits-all approach to houseplants. In actual fact, there are all different kinds of plants that need to be in the home because it's too cold outside here to grow them. And they may be arid plants like cacti and succulents. They may be tropical plants like alocasias, colocasias and gingers. And we need to water them and feed them and pot them on at completely different times. So research your plants, know what you have, and then you know how to look after them because they each have individual needs. And another thing on a long list of don'ts is don't overlook pests in the home. Now, in the garden, we often find we have lots of different insects that can prey on our unwanted pests. But in our homes, that's not the case. And quickly, a small problem like an aphid, a woolly aphid, can suddenly take over and spread to all of your houseplants. So regular watering, but also regular pest checks and remove any plants that are showing signs of stress, disease or pest take them somewhere else, remove all of the pests and just keep them separate from all of your other prized houseplants until you're sure that you have a pest-free plant. A really common example of a houseplant pest is a mealybug. They are a pain. You can recognise them easily from white fluffy substance that they surround themselves in and you can see these little bugs crawling around on and under your leaves and especially in the leaf axils where one leaf meets the stem. Keep a close eye on them, they spread really quickly. They're not impossible to get rid of once you have them. If you find them, remove the plant that's infested, use a cotton wool bud and either some alcohol or some vinegar to wash off the mealybugs. Be very vigilant, check the plant regularly and make sure you remove absolutely every bug. Hopefully, this should solve the problem. So now I've given you all of the don'ts, here's a recommendation for a houseplant that it will be impossible for you to kill. So even if you're a beginner, this is one to try. It's Aspidistra. They are so easy to grow. A lot of them also grow outside, but you can neglect it, you can overwater it, you can keep it in the shade, you can put it in the sun, and it should be absolutely fine wherever it is. It's also a lush and beautiful plant with big, generous foliage, so it really, really brightens up a room. But if you consider yourself an expert horticulturist and you want a real challenge, then I always think bonsais are some of the hardest houseplants to grow. They all have different requirements dependent on species, but there are a few things to remember. Firstly, prune the roots. You can prune the branches, but it can really affect the shape of the tree. So a root prune is the best way to keep a bonsai in check. Secondly, water them regularly and soak that root ball really, really well. They don't want to dry out, but they don't want to be too wet either. So about an hour in the water and then lift them and let them dry out before you do it again. The other thing to remember is that an awful lot of bonsai species actually like to be outside whenever possible. So in the summer, in the spring or on very mild days, you can put them out in the fresh air and it will keep them healthy and green. I have often struggled myself with bonsai, but my dad is obsessed and has completely mastered them. He has a piano full of different bonsais and little hooks in the wall above the piano for his different scissors and tools to prune them. So actually I attempted them again a few years ago. I was at a friend's house and they had a massive bonsai that was dying and gave it to me on a rescue mission and it's now fully greened up. It's really healthy. It's actually very big for a bonsai. It's about two and a half feet tall, but it's looking really, really great. And 
I always think of my friend when I see it and I always feel very proud of myself to have finally achieved a green and healthy and happy bonsai. So whether it's a bonsai or an aspidistra or anything in between, I really, really encourage everybody to go and get some houseplants and bring some greenery into their home as well as into their garden. It really, really helps with your mental well-being. And it's a really great way of just surrounding yourself with nature. Make sure you buy them from a good, reputable company and that they've been really sustainably brought into the country because a lot of these plants are tropical. But I think bringing incredible, varied, botanically fascinating plants into your home is a great way to educate your children about the wonders of the natural world, to educate yourself about the wonders of the natural world, and to make your home a much nicer place. For more advice from Frances on how to garden creatively and productively, pick up a copy of her book, The Modern Gardener. Francis mentioned mealybugs. They are a menace and they're resistant to almost all pesticides. One of the things that my colleagues at Wisley have done in the glass houses is treat them with anti-insect nematodes. These are sold mainly for use in vegetable gardens. I had a go myself and the results are, are not too encouraging, I have to say, but I'm going to have another go because I'm about to order my nematodes for treating vine weevil so I can order some for having another go at the mealybug. There's a few houseplants sitting in the garden in isolation that are infested, so I shall try treating with the nematodes and give it another go. Bonsai are fabulous things and I'm absolutely fascinated by them because it's a getting this balance between roots that you restrict and yet keep healthy and the top growth that is stunted and undergoes stress which makes it look pretty. I've spoken to a lot of our bonsai experts and it's all about the roots. In the advice service at Wisley we find people kill them mostly by overwatering or more commonly overwatering when underwatering when overwatering and so on and that really does stress them so I think the key lies in watering and also the root pruning. Now picture a calming indoor space one that feels relaxing, a nice room to work or read in. Did the image that came to mind have houseplants in it? Because mine certainly did. But why? And what impact does this lush botanical greenery have on our well-being? These are a few of the questions that our next expert asked herself before she launched into her own research and began unpicking the science surrounding houseplants and their effect on us. <music> Hi, I'm Jenny Berger. I'm from the University of Reading and I've been undertaking research with the RHS investigating the impact of houseplants on indoor air quality and people's well-being. I used to work managing students and we had a centre where people would come into that I just liked and had plants in and I had plants in my office. And people used to come in and just sort of like, oh, it's so lovely when I come into this room and I feel so relaxed. It's so calming. And it was like a barrier breaker when people entered the offices and started the meetings. It kind of added a calming experience, I suppose, to the beginning of the process. And I felt better in my office myself by having plants around. And I thought, oh, is it just because they're improving the air? Because it was quite dry air in those offices. 
so in my head, these sort of like questions started saying, well, is that actually this sort of impact on the air quality that the plants are making us feel better? Or is it the actual presence of the plants doing something else? And so it grew from there, I suppose, a sort of interest in the two parts of the problem. So having got this idea that obviously I think is unique, I then start to look at the literature in the academic sort of world that's been done on this area. And you find that obviously you're never the first person. It's all seems like it's all been done before. I read like stacks and stacks of papers from other people and journals and articles. So I pieced together what I thought other people had found, what was missing in their research or what was questionable and needed to be established for definite, and then formulate a sort of question that's not been asked before or not been answered satisfactorily. So I suppose following the review of the literature, I came up with a, a big scale question of how do plants impact indoor environmental quality and how do they impact people's well-being and what are people responding to? Is it the impact on environmental quality or is it the impact of looking at them and that impacting their well-being? So the first part of measuring their impact on air quality and humidity showed they do impact air quality, but it's so small compared to the size of an office, the volume of an office compared to a potted plant, it became very apparent that's not significant and that cannot be what's making us feel so good. The humidity question, they can have a small impact on humidity. Most of that impact is taken away by the air change in the room. It's carried out of the room if it's a low humidity environment. So then the well-being did a lot of reading about trees and their shapes and outdoor plants. There's quite a lot of theories came up on trees that from evolution, people looked for certain shapes of trees that they considered were associated with healthy lands or would give them protection from predators. And like healthy green areas were a sign of food and good water. So there were these various evolutionary ideas that that's why we were attracted to certain green plants and certain shapes, because from evolution we knew they served a purpose. So that became an idea was, do those translate into houseplants? People perceived that any healthy green plant would improve their well-being. That was the first clear finding. Their perception that they would feel better with a healthy plant around was higher than if there was going to be no plant or an unhealthy plant. So something that they liked the look of, they thought, that is going to really make me feel so much better. If that was in my room, I'm going to feel a lot better than if I had one I didn't like or the no plant at all. So I specifically set out to look at your perception of well-being. How do you perceive that would impact your well-being? And there's a lot of other studies that show that is a reasonable indicator of what your well-being is. So there are positive associations with being outdoors. So I think for indoor environments, it's probably more about the aesthetics of indoors and our association of the green colours, the association of plants with relaxing outdoor spaces that triggers something 
that makes us feel calm and relaxed and happy. Certainly in the survey, people sent back comments that certain plants triggered happy memories for them of, for example, palm trees triggered the sort of thing of holidays and tropical environments and that sort of thing. Others were sort of memories maybe of childhood that their mother had a certain type of plant and that made them feel warm and happy. So it's very difficult to sort of find an evolutionary theory that holds force, but there's many aesthetic theories about the design of interiors and architecture and that sort of thing that show responses to shapes, to colours that plants fit into. So yeah, I would say to anyone, honestly, have a go with a houseplant. I started off with absolute zero knowledge of how to keep a houseplant and now I can seem to manage to keep almost anything alive and they're thriving. And all this research has shown even a small amount of green plants, even just one potted plant, will improve your well-being, just even a small bit. And it makes your space seem more relaxing and a nicer space to be. So I would say definitely to everyone out there, go out, give a houseplant a chance. Thanks, Jenny. I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when houseplants came into vogue. And the plants I remember my parents particularly wanting to grow was Begonia rex. It's one of those foliage begonias that is actually quite difficult, but they did keep it going for quite a while. So begonias have that special place for me in my own memory. And I couldn't imagine not living in a house that's full of vegetation. Well, I believe it's high time for me to leave you alone. It's early September. There's not any great urgency on task at the moment. But one of the things I'm going to do is get ready to harvest apples. We expect them to ripen a week or two earlier this year. So I must get my apple store ready, nice and rat proof, ready to harvest what I think will be a good crop. And I've also got an enormous harvest of tomatoes. So I shall be rendering those down in tomato sauce and freezing them for the winter. So from me, Guy Barter, see you next week. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, 
you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.